I like the Valentine's theme that Carl did with the music. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus and such love and all this. And the heart of the passage we're looking at this morning is going to talk about the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. So it's kind of a good Valentine's theme to get you all in the mood. So I want to say a personal word first, just a word of thanks for your prayers and not to worry anybody or anything, but uh, in conjunction with my doctor, without going through all the details, uh, we, meaning it's not just me by myself, have decided to postpone my surgery a little bit. So good or bad news, depending on your viewpoint, you're stuck with me next week. And so however you want to look at that, I certainly appreciate your continued prayers and still needs to be done, but we're trying to get some things in order and go from that and I'm trying to be a good soldier and work with the doctors here, so we have that. The good news, I get to minister to Evie and sometime in March even take a little vacation. That kind of sounds fun, doesn't it? I think we could work those things out. If you would turn in your Bibles, what we're here for this morning is to look at the Word of God and to worship Him and adore Christ. And the text this morning as we continue our study of the book of Proverbs is Proverbs chapter 3 verses 1 through 8, and you'll notice right smack dab in the middle of it, probably the most famous verse in the book of Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Let's put it in a little bit of context and turn our hearts and our attention to the presence of God by the power of the Spirit as we read together the Word of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness, and if you remember from what Andrew read in the call to worship, that steadfast love that is better than life itself. The Father's instruction is not to let that steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, but bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Smack dab in the middle, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's go before the Lord as we have read his word and ask the Holy Spirit to make his word real, to lead us into the truth, to illumine and change our hearts. We do ask, Father, that by the ministry of the Spirit, you would bless the preaching and the proclamation of your good news through Jesus Christ, through the Word of God, as we know from the text that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. So, Holy Spirit, make the truth real to us. Conform us to your character and your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's remind ourselves how we go about studying the book of Proverbs, why we're studying this, and very importantly, both to learn how to read the Proverbs and just as importantly, how not to read the Proverbs. I want to correct a couple of mistakes, a couple of things, because how we read this is very, very essential, because it's so easy to look at the Proverbs and to say, ah, timeless truths. All these principles, ethical principles, if you do this, this, and this, then this, this, and this will happen. Our hearts tend to gravitate towards that, kind of along the lines of if I live the right way, if I do the right thing, 
If I live by these morals, these ethical principles, then I'll have a nice, good, I mean, we even see you have a good six years of life, length of days, peace, all this. We know how to interpret that, right? That means ease, comfort, success, my kids turning out all right, no pain, no suffering, nice bank account, comfy security, dying at a ripe old age of 98 with all my kids and grandkids and great kids around me as I go off painlessly in my sleep, right? That's what, the way we think about that. And it's very easily to misread Proverbs in, ter in terms of that. That would be totally the wrong way to read the Proverbs because as one commentator said, we need so much more than ethical principles. We need a new heart. We need a totally new heart. Listen to how Tim Keller illustrates it. I think it goes hand in hand. It's a Valentine's Day illustration. The great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, talks about love. And Dr. Keller makes the point you can teach the Bible. You can give away all your money. You can die, be a martyr for the faith. But if it's the result of moral restraint, he calls it being an engineer jury rigging the heart. In other words, if it's coming from a heart that hasn't been changed by divine love at the center, he says that in spite of all that great behavior on the external, doing the right thing, living by the external principles, he says you will still be irritable, impatient, selfish, petty, anxious, self-seeking, kind of all the things verses 4 to 7 in love say you shouldn't be. And he asked the question why. He says because when we're using the principles, the morals, the law alone to make a person good or moral, you're doing it at the expense of love and joy and peace. And he goes on to say, he says, think about how often our society encourages us to raise our children. He says, what do you do? He says, in school, you get them and you say, we don't want you to do this. And we don't want you to do this. And we don't want you to do this. And yes, why? That you'll be caught. God will catch you. I will catch you. The police will catch you. You don't want to be caught. Or more than that, he says, number two, you don't want people to despise you and not like you and think you're that kind of horrible person, do you? He says, you'll have no dignity, no self-respect. And he goes on, he asks the question, he says, so how are we making these kids moral when we raise them that way? He says, we're making kids moral by nurturing joylessness, peacelessness, insecurity, anxiety, and fear. And he says, what that means is that the law as the law can establish external moral behavior. And the Proverbs, if all we read them is external, timeless truths that are disjointed sayings, Without a complete change of heart, without the biblical worldview, we're doing it at the expense of inner peace, inner joy, a changed heart. He says, put it, to put it this way, the fear and pride that you will nurture in order to be moral through the law will show up only in private, where only your family lives or your spouse lives or those who are closest to you live. The people who know you best will know just how angry and defensive and anxious and fearful you really are. He says, and that's what happens if we look at the scriptures as a way to jury rig our heart rather than a description of what a changed life, life in the kingdom of God looks like. And the Proverbs, as we have been saying, are talking about living life with God, his love, his kingdom, his covenant, which means a relationship at the center. 
which leads to human flourishing. Or what if I can quote a famous quote by the church father, Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive. That's the picture Solomon is passing on to his children. That's the picture that God, our heavenly father, is, pick, is passing on to his adopted children. So where in Proverbs chapter 2 we introduce the process of what the Bible calls sanctification, the dynamics of change, God's ongoing work of renewing us and delivering us from sin. Here in Proverbs chapter 3, we're continuing by laying out the benefits, describing what a life of wisdom looks like, a new heart living well as the fruit of a heart that has been impacted and changed by steadfast love and faithfulness in every area of life. What Solomon is doing is instructing his son, his family. What God is doing is instructing his family. In love, he predestined us for what? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God is instructing his family concerning a life of shalom, a life of true human flourishing. The word that we'll see as we get to it in just a second, in verse 2 for peace, is the word shalom. And friends, this is not about earning or maintaining God's love. Remember again, verse 1 begins with the words, my son, indicating God is speaking. This is a family talk. He's saying, do you want to know what the core values are? He's not saying this is how to earn love or maintain favor or have a successful life in my family. He's saying, here are the core values of my family. Here's what my family is all about. It's more description than prescription, if you would, which leads to another wrong way if I can put it this way, and forgive me, well, not really, this was planned, for a lengthy introduction. A lot of people misread Proverbs by thinking that this is the prosperity gospel. Can I say in the most unequivocal terms, absolutely not. Ray Ortland, who's a PCA pastor and whose commentary I'm relying heavily on in this series, says the prosperity gospel is simply, at bottom, cold-hearted materialism that uses God in a name-it-and-claim-it fashion. And he goes on to say, this is not the kind of religion, if we look at Scripture, interpreting Scripture for a second, he says, does this sound like what the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, but whatever I gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Does it sound like Paul is describing what the Proverbs would call success and length of years and good days? Sounds to me that he's counting them as knowing Christ in the deepest, most vulnerable, most intimate way possible. The glory of God is man fully alive. This is so difficult for us because... If the Proverbs are about human flourishing, they're telling us what true wisdom is, and they're saying the benefits of wisdom are real and they're good. And we need to remember that the one addressing us is God, our Father, the one Jesus calls Abba, and the Spirit teaches us to say Abba. And the one who ultimately says my son is the one who is sovereign and who is the one who is writing our life story. That means everything he sends into our life is for our good and his glory. And that means our chief battle I've given you a question 
to ask yourself in every sermon so far is things like, who do we listen to? Are we truly teachable? What is wisdom really worth to you? Here's today's question. What is and where does your chief battle lie? And I'm going to, this is a take-home test. I'm going to cheat and give you the answer. Let me tell you right off the bat where your chief battle lies. It lies at verse 5 that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Your chief battle is not that of the external behaviors. Many of us can be moral and disciplined and even what the world calls very good, but the chief battle, the spiritual warfare that you're involved in, what your flesh, what the world, and what Satan are attacking you if you're a child of God is whether you, what you value the most, where your chief allegiance is, what you're truly worshiping, and what you truly trust is the Lord himself. And if you look at it, our lives are truly complicated. God gives and God takes away, Job says. And even in this passage later on that we'll look at next week in verses 11 and 12, God disciplines those he loves. He reproves his sons. But our chief battle is what our heart really wants. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount where your treasure is, and your treasure is what? That which is most important to you. It says where your treasure is, there your heart will truly be. So I want to ask you this question. How do we go about fighting our chief battle? How do we engage in that practically? And this text tells us we need to remember two things. We need to remember God's covenant design and we need to remember God's covenant demand. The entire umbrella of this passage is God's covenant relationship with his family. We are God's covenant children. And there's a design to that covenant and there's a demand to that covenant. Let's begin by looking at verses 1 through 4 in the design of the covenant. Again, it's addressed, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep. That word keep means guard, maintain vigilantly, protect my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace. And that word peace there is the word shalom. What is God's ultimate design? Another way of looking at this is let's look at the overarching narrative of the Bible. Why did God create the world? When he created the world, what was disrupted through the fall that led God to put into motion a plan by his grace and his sovereignty to redeem his covenant family, which will eventually lead to ultimate restoration. If you want to know the biblical narrative, it's creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The design of creation in a word is shalom. And shalom means much more than we think of peace as, ah, I'm done work. I'm home. I'm on my sofa. I'm enjoying lunch. The ball game's on. Shalom. That is such a narrow view of peace. Peace is basically, shalom is the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God in every realm, every area of life. It means wholeness. It means completeness. It means integration and union of heaven and earth, the spiritual and the physical, of body and soul. If you think about Genesis 1 and 2, it was right relationships. That's what justice and righteousness means, a right order between our relationship with God, the spiritual, how we view ourselves, the psychological, our relationships with others, the social, and our relationship with the whole world. 
And this is why in the fall, what was disrupted, what was violated, you know what, did you think sin was Adam and Eve chose to have the wrong breakfast? Ugh, I was supposed to have peas and carrots this morning and I had an apple. How superficial do you think the Bible is? When we view things only on the external and behaviorally, we are looking at the Bible very super. We're about an inch deep. The sin is treason or mutiny, and it's a violation of shalom. And God's hesed, the biblical word, the Hebrew word for covenant love, Steve Childers talks about the gospel at its essence being the good news that is the restoration of shalom, the restoration of creation. It's the restoration of our relationship with God, ourselves, others, and the world. Jesus Christ came to usher in the kingdom of God. His rule, his reign, his power. Tim Keller writes, he says, when anything is brought back under Christ's rule, and that's what Solomon is describing, when he says, my son, keep my instructions, guard with your heart. We know from the rest of the Bible, those instructions, that word revolves around the kingdom of God. It's bringing everything back under Christ's rule. It's restoration to health, wholeness, beauty, freedom, coherence, and order. God is our Father, and he's telling us how to have shalom. He's reminding his children about peace. That's what, The structure of this is very simple, and again, we've got to recognize how to read and how not to read, because each pair of verses form a couplet that has an instruction and an incentive, instruction and a motivation. So my son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments as an instruction for length of days and years of life and peace. They will add to you. There's your incentive. It does bring shalom. He's describing life in his kingdom. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Never let God's covenant commitment leave you, in other words. Write them on the tablet of your heart, instruction, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And again, the issue is not do this and this will happen to you. That would be formulaic and mechanical. Solomon is saying this is how God's rule and reign look, looks like. This is life in the kingdom. The point is drill this down deeply into your heart. Ray Ortland says, he goes, the father is saying, what are you paying attention to? Pay attention to me. What do you value? What is most important to you? Let your heart guard, maintain vigilantly my word. Let your, your heart is your security system. And every day, thieves are trying to rob you of length of days, years of life, and shalom. And as we engage in the battle, the chief battle, do you want to know what the chief thief is in our heart that's trying to rob us? According to the scriptures, the chief thief are our idols. Idolatry, the sin underneath the sin, the idols of our heart. Where our allegiance truly lies. Think about the word here. Bind steadfast love. That's a covenant word around your neck. Idols are saying, bind me around your neck. Bind approval, bind comfort, bind power, bind control, bind your kid's health, bind your 401k, bind success in your career, bind what other people think of you. 
David Martin Lloyd-Jones, a tremendous preacher of the 20th century, wrote, an idol is anything in our lives, so it's not necessarily a bad thing, anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy, and my money. Where does the chief battle lie? It lies in treasuring God. What we treasure, there is what we will value. It's not a matter of saying, because we all say, all we need is God. The issue is, do we say, is all I want God? The key is to remember how God reveals and identifies himself. Verses 3 and 4, bind around your heart his steadfast love and faithfulness is how God reveals himself by virtue of his covenant, his covenant love. That means his relational commitment. That means he has bound you around his neck, so to speak. He is that committed to you. You are part of his covenant family. Ray Ortland again says, so much American religion today is not about who God is. So much American religion makes us the immovable ones, the center around which God orbits. American religion is not about us changing and repenting and adjusting to who God is. It's about God making us feel better about ourselves without our having to change. But the truth is God is who he is. And who he is is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. That's his character, is the knowledge of God filling you so that we can become more like him. That's his design. That's his covenant design. Look with me now at verses 5 through 8, because here's the heart of the battle. Living out of the design, you see his covenant demand to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And that means literally, Bruce Waltke says, in all your ways, desire him, desire his presence. In all your ways, that's, again, he is number one. He is what you want the most. Psalm 63, my God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Why? Because I've beheld your power and your glory in the sanctuary, and your steadfast love is better than life. Those are amazing words. And do you recognize the Psalms are the kind of the worship book, the prayer book for our soul? When was the last time you prayed that God's love is better than life itself? That here's life, and it's pretty good. It's not bad. And here's God's steadfast love. In all your ways, desire him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Oh, friends, this is so challenging. And here's the heart of the battle. Here's the spiritual warfare. You should be feeling, I know I'm feeling, this is a tough sermon this morning. Because this is the heart. We could have sang, it's not a Valentine's Day song, but we could have sang Onward Christian Soldiers, and we would need to be a Christian soldier in our own hearts, in our own lives, fighting the battle of trust. And if you look here, our trust, our confidence must be in the Lord himself, in Jesus Christ himself. And something interesting, 
If you just look with me at the text, when it says, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones, one of the places where the prosperity gospel goes so wrong is they assume that that means God wants you to experience no pain, nothing. That does not take into account whatsoever the entire story of the Bible that says healing is about restoration, and therefore it, it, it assumes and presupposes brokenness and pain and suffering. The promise to those who are not wise in their own eyes, who fear the Lord and turn away from evil, is healing, which presupposes a context of pain and suffering, but gives as it does the gospel covenantal promise of healing, of restoration. Can you see why now the Apostle Paul would say, I consider, what is he doing? He's feeding God's covenant, his steadfast love. I consider that our present suffering, he's not denying, he's saying it's real, he's fighting that tension, but it's not worth comparing to the glory that is to be fully revealed in us. With all our heart means wholehearted, wholehearted trust. And again, Ray Ortland says that the meaning of that word trust is cognate with an Arabic word that means to throw oneself down on one's face, to lie down spread eagle in complete reliance. He gives the picture, he says it's to do a belly flop on God. With all our sin, all our failures, all our fears, it's staking everything on the gospel promises of God. When was the last time you did a belly flop and abandoned yourself that much on the character and the knowledge and the covenantal love and commitment of God? Do we really understand what trust is all about? Evies and I, dear friends from Oklahoma City, worship in a PCA church in Oklahoma City, and they're doing a Lenten devotional right now. And our dear, dear friend posted an excerpt out of that on the nature of what faith and trust is all about from their Lenten devotional. And I want to read a portion of it because it is so good describing the nature of faith and the nature of trust, and having us understand where the battle lies, what it's really about, and just how difficult it really is. The devotional was taken from a few days ago, and the context of it, it was based on the life of Naomi and the experience of Naomi in the book of Ruth. And if you remember the story of Naomi losing her family and going through such grief and agony that she says she was in bitterness and the gall of her soul. And here's what their devotional says for that particular day. Embedded in Naomi's lament is her belief in a God who is good and powerful. But she is in agony. Because if he is good, why is he allow, allowing her to suffer like this? And if he is so powerful, why doesn't he stop it? And in the middle of the internal battle to reconcile her belief with her pain, she laments, not dropping goodness, not dropping power, so she's holding on to fundamental doctrine and belief, but struggling to continue to believe that he is both. Naomi lives in this tension between hope and reality, facing, not avoiding, the reality of her circumstances. 
while simultaneously longing for them, agonizing for them to be different. She doesn't collapse this tension, but lives in the murky middle. This is faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on our own understanding. This is a little different than just see our behavior, quote a scripture, try to apply it. You need to know where you're applying. I'm not speaking against the sufficiency of the scripture. The scripture is 1,000% sufficiency. I'm talking about knowing how to apply it to your life's and heart's dynamics so that the sufficiency of scripture can really exercise the dynamic of change. I'm talking about having real faith and real trust that is more than just agreeing with the Bible. It's living and doing the Bible. It's more than just hearing the word. It's doing the word. It's more than just knowing the truth. It's living and incarnating the truth. Ray Ortland says, he says, giving, he gives the following diagnostic test. Here's his MRI, so to speak. How do you know if you're doing this? He says, when was the last time you took a risk to obey Christ? What, when was the last time you really sacrificed to obey Christ? When was the last time you diminished your future, socially, financially, professionally, for his sake? When was the last time your life looked obviously different from the life of someone who does not trust Jesus at all? If you never surprise an unbelieving friend by your sacrifices for Christ, it is probably because what you are living for is the same earthly payoff he is living for. Wow. I know that challenges me. That speaks about witnessing not just with our words, but our life, and have somebody say, why are you risking everything for Christ? If you never surprise an unbelieving friend, so that they're asking what is different about you. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe what you're living for, as Dr. Orland says, is the same earthly payoff he's living for? Be not wise in your own eyes, which there can't be a more unequivocal warning against the spirit of self-assurance, the spirit that says, I'm certain, not just of the word of God, but of my interpretation, of my application, of my... Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil, for it will bring healing, restoration, wholeness to your flesh, refreshment, light, life to your bones. How in the world do we do this? The only way is belly flopping onto what Jesus Christ did for us. Do you recognize what Jesus did for us? I just want to take you to one New Testament account, Mark chapter 14, verses 34 to 36, where Jesus, you want to talk about someone who had faith in the Lord, trust in the Lord. In the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the trial, the chasm that Jonathan Edwards says he was at that point face to face with the chasm of hell that he was about to enter in for you and I, for his elect. He says, you want to talk about true faith that's entering into the murky middle, not denying the goodness and power of God, but collapsing this tension into what he was facing, the agonizing circumstances he was facing. He prayed, my soul is sorrowful, and he's sweating drops 
of blood. And he cries out, Abba, Father, let this cup pass from me. You want to talk about honest faith? I'm looking into the chasm and I don't like what I'm looking at. I'm being real, I'm agonizing, let this cup pass for me. But trust in the Lord that is part of the righteousness of God that he was fulfilling for you and I. Yet not my will, but your will be done. I'm surrendering to the plan of God. I'm sacrificing all to obey God for you. That's the definition, that's the picture of steadfast love. Do you bind it around your neck? Or is it kind of out here on the surface of your consciousness that you go through because, yeah, you come to church each week and I preach it to you for an hour. But then you forget it Monday through Saturday. Or maybe you're really spiritual and you go to a community group. Or as Andrew read in Psalm 63, does your soul thirst for it? Does your flesh faint for it in a dry and weary land where there is no water? The only way you're going to experience gospel renewal is through desperation. Are we desperate for it? As the deer pants for streams of water, thirst will make you desperate. We're pretty comfortable. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants, longs, faints for you. The living God. How badly do you want to know God? It's the only thing that is life. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Ray Ortland, in the close of his section of this, quoted John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, who said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God. And I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God upon earth. Jesus Christ lost shalom with his father so that you and I would never have to. He lost that wholeness for a time so that you and I could fear the Lord, be not wise in our own eyes, and turn away from evil. Let's pray. Father, renew us that we would engage in the right battle. Help us to identify what all the wrong battles are in our lives. There's not renewal so many times because so many times we fight the wrong battle. And oh, how I would pray we would engage in the right battle because you are faithful and you promise restoration which doesn't mean perfect circumstances here, but it certainly does mean the presence and the power of God. So, Lord, we do pray that we would hear and receive and guard your words and your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen.